The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Wall Street gains as October retail sales come in strong and better-than-expected earnings point to robust consumer spending despite rising prices. President Biden says he'll reveal his nomination for the next Fed chair this week as Deputy Secretary of the Treasury Wally Adeyemo tells CNBC inflation will remain an issue as long as COVID runs rampant. A Dutch lawmaker threatens to hit Shell with an exit tax as the fallout from the oil majors plan to end its dual structure and move its tax base to the UK heats up. Plus, shares in electric car makers Rivian and Lucid surge with Lucid overtaking Ford by market cap, whilst Rivian becomes the world's third most valuable auto company. Germany considers tighter COVID restrictions while Ireland urges everyone to work from home again. And Slovakia eyes limits for the unvaccinated as COVID surges across the continent. So U.S. consumers appear to have brushed aside rising costs and supply pressures as retail sales accelerated faster than expected in October. Monthly sales were up 1.7% for all items and are more than 16% higher on an annual basis. If I walk you around the wall here, we can also have a look at the breakdown. Electronic appliances, building materials and vehicles and auto parts saw the biggest monthly jump in sales, while restaurants and bar sales were flat and clothing sales, well, they actually fell in the data. The uh, home builder sentiment in the US continues to rise on the back of demand for new homes, even as materials and labour remain in short supply. The National Association of Home Builders and Wells Fargo Housing Market Index came in at 83 for November. That is the highest level since May. So the markets enjoyed the data for a change. Um, in part, Jeffrey. In part, the Dow did. Are you staying with me at the wall? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. No, no, Should no, I wrong. go? Right, so I, uh, this is your spot. I don't oh, want to crowd you. Oh, he's crossing from the camera. They don't like the leave. telly I'm world leave. crossing in front of the camera. I don't, I don't want to cramp, cramp your style. Well, pff, <laughs> what style I have. It was cramped years ago, but thank you. Uh, the Dow was up 0.2 of 1%. S&P, as Jeff was saying, enjoying it a little bit more, uh, closing at 4,700 dead as well. Uh, just shy of 16,000 for the Nasdaq, up 0.8 of 1%. Uh, we can take a look at the Treasuries. Uh, we've got the 10-year now just... Well, in swan-like fashion, the yield is picking up and we're seeing a decline in the underlying. So now we've got a 1.64 handle uh, on the 10-year paper, give or take. At the short end of the curve, the two-year trading at 0.52, the five-year 
uh, 1.263. In terms of data, well, Jeff has eloquently, as ever, talked about the data we've just had. Today, we have mortgage applications, housing starts, uh, and, and on Friday, the Philly Fed, initial jobless claims, uh, and one or two other indicators, including the index of leading indicators as well. So what that's going to do to the dollar? Well, let's just take a look at where the dollar is. I did note, actually, the dollar index up another 0.6 of 1% yesterday. And as such, sterling just falling back. Well, what is going on with sterling at the moment as well? I, I, I'm loath to get into flip-flop territory about policy at the Bank of England, especially when we've just had a 7-2 vote to keep interest rates unchanged. But it's going to be something so exciting today, it's going to be unbelievable. We're going to get an endorsement of why the Bank of England has kept rates unchanged, just like we did yesterday. Uh, no, that doesn't make sense, does it? Because the jobs figures, yes, they were fantastic in the UK compared to where we thought they were going to be as the furlough ends. Oh, maybe the inflation figures will be low. Yeah, what's the, what's the target on UK inflation these days, Jeff? Four, five, six percent? Uh, about five percent, I think. Must be about five percent for the Bank of England, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, hang on a second. I thought the target for inflation in the UK from the MPC uh, is 2%. But as we all know, and the phrase du jour, phrase de année, is it's just transitory. But anyway, let's have a look at these uh, CPI and PPI figures. I can barely wait. 56 minutes time, 55 minutes time, we're going to get them out of the UK. If you've got a four handle plus on CPI, that's going to put pressure on what on earth the PPI is going to be, is anyone's guess. 113 on the euro. What happened to the European recovery? Do you remember the stages of this year? We normally have about four a year where we talk about the European recovery, where people get very, very excited about Europe compared with the United States because of valuations, because of economic growth potential, because of COVID progress. What happened to the assault on 120? I'll leave it hanging. Uh, dollar yen trading 114.84, dollar yuan 6.385. The oil markets, well, I think we're stuck in a, a range at the moment. We're at the tail, bottom, near the bottom end of the range. 81.62 on Brent, uh, 80 bucks on WTI. There are so many cross currents, whether it's on COVID, whether it's on demand story, whether it's on the OPEC plus supply story that we've been hearing so much out of Adipec from uh, Hadley and Dan about as well. We'll hear from them later on as well. Uh, and Brent trading 81.63, as I mentioned, WTI pivoting around $80 per barrel. The Asian indices look like this. The Shanghai Composite is the only one of the four you can see on the screen now in positive territory, up two tenths of 1%. Elsewhere, the ASX 200. Uh, I was listening to a really good debate uh, amongst Australians about coal going forward. And it was really good, actually. And it, and, and it just, obviously, they're, they're the villain of the G7 at the moment, or, or the G20, I should say, uh, regarding uh, who, um, yeah, has coal going forward or who has renewables going forward as well. But I mean, as, as, as one Australian commentator put it, and yeah, you've got to have a degree of understanding. It's all very well for Ireland and New Zealand to talk about giving up coal. You've got to give up coal. But the Australians put it like this. It's like, well, it's like telling the New Zealanders to give up sheep. Yeah, I can't, you know, you have to have empathy from where people are coming from as well and what the drivers of their economy have been, are and could be going forward as well. And I know that's not what climate uh, campaigners want to hear, but Australia and their economy is so inextricably tied to minerals as well. You have to have some understanding of the different points of view. Otherwise, you're never going to make progress. Right, um, Rod wants to look at the opening call. So we shall do that very, very quickly before Karen comes in as well. Um, they're not that interesting, Rod, are they, really? In fact, they are interesting. Uh, 30 points down for three of the major indices. The Kakarond seen up one point. But I want to know what US President Joe Biden, Biden has said. So Karen's going to tell you. 
Well, Steve, it does lean into what you're talking about before. One of the central banking strategies has been just to change the rules or the metrics around inflation. Another option is to just change the people. And this is what has been discussed as uh, US President Joe Biden says he will decide whether or not to renominate Fed Chair Jay Powell for a second term before the end of the week. Fed Governor Lyle Brainard is also thought to be in the running. It comes as a debate around inflation and on when to raise interest rates intensifies, even after the Fed announced it has begun phasing out its bond buying program. Well, speaking to our US colleagues, the co-founder and chairman of Carlyle Group, David Rubenstein, said he's backing Powell to receive a second term. Very difficult to think that anybody other than Jay Powell can be readily confirmed, in my view. Uh, Jay Powell is well regarded on Capitol Hill. He spent more time on Capitol Hill than probably any other Fed chair we've had in recent memory. He's well liked there. And the Democrats only have 51 votes in the Senate. Um, I think it may be difficult to get um, many, if any, Republican votes for the president's choice uh, other than Jay Powell. Mm. Well, let's bring in uh, Carl Weinberg to tie some of these threads together for us. Carl is chief economist and managing director at High Frequency Economics. Carl, good morning to you. Maybe let's just pick up on the uh, stronger than expected data. Um, How should we assess that in terms of, one, the labour market, two, the underlying strength of the US economy, and three, what this means for uh, inflation and prices? Well, good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Karen. So we got some good data yesterday, and the way to read that data is literally the U.S. economy is rebounding. In many respects, it has rebounded already. Output is back uh, at the level where it was before the pandemic. GDP is higher than it was before the pandemic. The labor market, however, is not responding as quickly as is typical for economic recessions. We forget that after 2008, 2009, that it took a decade for the unemployment rate to get back to where it was before, to get back to full employment. So uh, we're really right on track for where we should be, and that may be a disappointment to some, uh, and it may raise a lot of questions about what's happening in the labor market, but I think only because we're standing too close to the data to really see the whole picture. How strong is the recovery in the supply chains? Um, that seems to be the, the difficult question to answer at this point, how long this is going to prolong price pressures and whether it's supply chains alone or whether we're now starting to see pressure in wages affecting core. What's your assessment? You know, Jeff, my colleague uh, Rubila Faruqi here at High Frequency Economics in her note this morning to clients pointed out that industrial production in the United States is now higher than it was the month before the pandemic. Only a few tenths of a percent, but it's higher. And manufacturing output is up by 1.7% compared to where it was in February of 2020, despite the supply constraints that we all talk about. So what seems to be happening is that a lot of sectors in the economy must be outperforming those sectors of the economy that we know are struggling with the supply chain, in particular, retail merchandising we know has backlogs, we've all been to the shops, and the auto sector is a really important one, which in the middle of everything is doing rather poorly, while the rest of manufacturing is doing well. And we see the same story in the data in Canada, which are also very detailed and very easy to access, that industrial production 
production overall is quite strong, but the auto sector is dragging things back down again. So we have a problem related to specific sectors of the economy, not to the economy overall. And I was surprised to read those industrial production and manufacturing numbers, but they are what they are. And Jeff, we're doing it now with 5 million fewer people working than before the pandemic. So this tells us that productivity ought to be up by maybe 3% or more compared to then. And we have to keep productivity in mind when we talk about wage increases, which I'm sure is going to be your very next question. And those wage increases are tolerable with with steady, stable prices, as long as they're offset by productivity gains. And voila, that's what we're seeing. I've loved our debate over the last year or so, and I've loved the fact that I'm proving more right than you on this as well. But, 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 um, which I'm sure you'll love me saying that. Um, but in all honesty, Carl, are, given the nuances and, and, and the pragmatism that you and I and Jeff and Karen are exhibiting in our conversation here, is it right that we still have crisis era levels of interest rates, crisis era levels of purchases in quantitative easing, which we're still having, even though there's a very slow wind down of it? Is that appropriate for the, the, the nuances in the economy at the moment? An economy that saw 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September. So, Steve, let's let's not be influenced by hysterical people like Larry Summers who are telling us that inflation is taking off. Let's listen to what the people who actually are making policy are telling us. All right. Listen to this quote. Monetary policy should not respond to supply shocks which do not become generalized through their impact on inflation expectations. That was Andrew Bailey on September 27th. Listen to this one. The early days of stabilization policy in the 1950s taught monetary policymakers not to attempt to offset what are likely to be temporary fluctuations in inflation. Indeed, responding may do more harm than good. That was Jerome Powell at Jackson Hall. And where are they getting this language from? Well, Powell has the courtesy to quote the source, which is Milton Friedman testifying in Congress in 1958, warning policymakers that indeed there will be a lot of pressure when there are shocks to the economy to respond to short-term fluctuations in prices. But he writes, yielding to these pressures may frequently do more harm than good. There is a goal of extremely high, a goal in policy to set an extremely stable course for prices, but we don't have the precision to do that with monetary policy. We can only set a stable course for the medium and the longer term, and that's what our policymakers are giving us, and I expect that's what they're going to continue to deliver to us. Cole, Cole, you're missing the point, what I'm trying to make here. I'm not getting historic, hysterical listening to hysterical voices. Quite frankly, I'm surprised there aren't more hysterical voices out there given the 6% handle on CPI. All I'm doing is looking at data. All I'm doing is looking at how people are living their lives and looking at the cost of living for normal people. I'm looking at the unavailability uh, of product, of logistics, uh, of individuals as well. And I'm extrapolating that there may be something here more than transitory. I'm doing something that the central banks don't seem to be willing to countenance, and that is considering that some of this may be permanent. Given the fact that everyone keeps telling us how unprecedented the current situation is post-COVID as well, all I'm doing is saying maybe it's not transient. I don't think there's anything hysterical about that. And by framing the counter-argument as hysterical, Carl, I, I think you're trying to nullify the, the, the other side of the debate. And I think that's ridiculous given the amount of the um, data we're seeing, which is backing up uh, a high degree of longer term inflation in the system. Carl, I've spoken to, I kid you not, 
30 to 40 CEOs in the last month or so. And every single one of them has talked about inflation lasting longer. There is nothing hysterical about that, Carl. So, Steve, I hear what you're saying and I feel what you're feeling. But being a pain in the neck, as you know, I am. I actually look at the data. So taking apart the U.S. Say, taking apart the U.S. CPI for October with that big headline number for year-over-year increases in headline CPI, we find that when we look at the 69 detailed categories within the CPI, one-third of the prices within the CPI are falling outright, and half of the price components within the CPI, categories of goods, are rising by less than a 2% year-over-year, a 2% yearly annualized rate. Right? That's not inflation. What you're experiencing in some goods is that prices are going up, and in some services, prices are going up, and that there is some unavailability of some goods. And when we see that, we respond to that. But that causes us to lose track of the fact that some prices are going down, that lots of goods are available. And when we look at the aggregate numbers, the aggregate numbers tell us that in the United States and in China, the two largest economies on the planet, that output is actually higher than it was before the pandemic despite the supply constraints. And despite the shipping constraints, China is booking record exports, record imports uh, 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 every month for the last six months. So yes, there are things to worry about, but every increase in the CPI is not inflation, even though the CPI does go up every time there is inflation. The rise of selected categories, scattered categories of products within CPIs are making those averages of a basket price move higher, but that doesn't mean that all prices are moving higher along with all wages. Inflation is a process of spiraling wages and prices. It's not a one-time event, an off-time shock, shock to prices coming from an understandable supply shock. It's been a great conversation, Carl. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good to have you with us. Carl Weinberg, Chief Economist and Managing Director at High Frequency Can I just Economics. say, while Carl is still living, I love every conversation we have with Carl as yes. well. I, I, I find us stretched mentally when we're talking and, I, and yes. it, it makes me question my own arguments as well yes which is good which is I, what the he, point I, of the debate Carl, is if you're about. still listening i think you're great i think it's fantastic <laughs> okay <laughs> do you, do you uh, wish we have more people like carl on this show especially uh, at 6 a.m well, what time is it there it's 1 a.m early or early or late depending on how he's what living like his social life I'm rubbish uh, these days asleep usually <laughs> uh, walmart's third quarter earnings uh, topping analysts expectations as price sensitive grocery shoppers flock to its stores amid rising costs for household staples the multinational retailer lifting its forecast for the year saying adjusted earnings per share will be around six dollars forty cents up from six dollars twenty and $6.35 shares closed in the red. President and CEO Douglas McMillan uh, says cutting prices for consumers remains a priority. We save people money and help them live a better life. Those are the words that came out of Sam Walton's mouth. He loved to fight inflation, so do we. So yeah, our cost inflation is higher than our retail inflation and we could decide to pass more of that on. We're passing enough of that on to deliver for shareholders. I mean, the EPS results speak for themselves, but we're proud to try and hold prices down. And our conversations with suppliers today, tomorrow will be, you know, how can you help us roll back prices and swim upstream and be different than everybody else? Coming up on the program, hear from our exclusive interview with the European Commission 
uh, EVP Franz Timmermans as we get his view on the state of energy transition in the wake of COP26. Don't miss that. Oh, and I'm told the podcast is an absolute gem. Honestly, it's, it's like a, a zirconian stone. It's, it's, no, it's very, very good today. It's talking about intensifying rate debate and the inflation debate in the United States. You can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. What a great conversation with Carl. Right, let's move on. Shell may face an exit penalty as it prepares to leave the Netherlands for the UK's less burdensome tax regime. The Dutch opposition Green Party has threatened to expedite plans to create an exit fee for companies who leave the country for tax reasons as Shell... Hang on, this is interesting. As Shell along with other giants such as Unilever and their dual share structure in the Netherlands. Dutch MPs hope to discuss the new levy before Shell's shareholder meeting on December 10th. I know we've got to get to the tape, but just can I just say that? So the Greens want to tax a hydrocarbon company for leaving. Mm. I thought the Greens didn't want hydrocarbon companies. So if they're going, surely that's a good thing. Uh, well, I, it's... it's um... They want it both ways, right? Let's, let's get the tax while they're here. Let's get the tax when they leave. We don't... Dastardly IOCs. Yes. Dastardly IOCs. Oh, by the way, you can't go. Well, if you, you go, love, if you I go, can, you've got to pay. I could never go into politics. I think you might have fun. <laughs> I think we might all have fun. Uh, the European Commission's Executive Vice President for the European Green Deal, Franz Timmermans, says we should not be disappointed in the outcome of COP26, with 90% of the world's economy having now declared a net zero goal. But Sylvia, I think we all understand that the agreement that we saw in Glasgow doesn't actually get us to the 1.5% in terms of global warming. How can um, Mr Timmermans present this as a positive outcome? Well, in essence, he just said this is better than what they had on the table before. And in reality, that is true. But you're right in saying that we're seeing these two camps after COP26. One that says, indeed, it was better than what many had hoped for. But on the other hand, some people, including a lot of young people, are saying that this is not enough. And so I asked Franz Timmermans yesterday here in Brussels in which one of these camps he's standing. We want to be on track for the 1.5. We want to reduce our methane emissions. I should have mentioned that in my first comment, by the way. Methane, big, big thing. We want to reduce our CO2 uh, emissions. And also the fact that China declares that it wants to phase down coal for a country that is still so dependent on coal, uh, that is quite something. So I wouldn't belittle that. Uh, of course, the images, because China and India insisted so much on changing the formulation 
from uh, um, uh, phasing out to phasing down that they influenced in a negative way. I would have preferred, preferred uh, phasing out. But to phase down is already much stronger than anything that has ever been said in an international context. So no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too critical of China. I mean, I would have liked to have seen more, but they did, they did contribute. So friend Timmermans there saying that he would have liked to see the phase-out wording in the final agreement, but ultimately he's sounding quite positive about what happened in Scotland for two weeks. Having said that, though, it's all about concrete action going forward. And for many countries out there, we're still waiting to see how they will actually achieve carbon neutrality in the coming years. And when we look at upcoming action, it's important to bear in mind that the European Commission itself is about to present what they call a new taxonomy. Effectively, this will just suggest to investors where they should be investing if they want to be ESG compliant. And the expectation is that the Commission will say that nuclear is somewhat a clean energy. And so I ask friends, Timmermans, if this was going to be the right image. Let's take a look. The starting position, of course, is that every member state has the right. It's a sovereign decision of a member state to determine their energy mix. They only have to make sure they do, uh, they comply with our carbon neutrality, our, uh, our um, uh, climate neutrality goal in 2050 and the reduction of emissions in 2030. That's what we demand. The way they do it is up to them. So friends, Timmermans, they're making it clear that in his opinion, it's not a problem if European countries use nuclear energy as long as they stick and achieve the climate targets that they have set up to. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.